0: Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kanapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, alongside us. Our guest today, Jim Callis, MLB Pipeline, at Jim Callis MLB on Twitter. Jim, thank you for being so kind, as always, to jump on the Future Sox Podcast. I don't know how many times we've talked to you at this point. It's always great to to interact and get your opinion. We have another list dropping. It's so good to talk to you, man. Thank you for jumping on.
2: Uh,
3: thanks for having me. It's always fun talking White Sox with you guys. Uh, you know, Looking forward to it. Uh, you guys always ask good questions, so it's always a, always a good conversation.
1: Oh, that makes us feel so good. Jim, here's where I want to start. Three lists over the last year plus. What kind of movement have you seen within the White Sox farm system regarding the progress and some of the prospects that you've seen brought in, as well as what you've seen develop over the last year plus.
3: Yeah. I mean, look, they had to go up. Cause I think we ranked them what 30th at this time a year ago. And, you know, I still think, I mean, there's, there's work to be done. We haven't done our, our organization rankings, you know, they're, they're still probably in the twenties somewhere, but I mean, I think things are looking significantly brighter than they did a year ago. I mean, you know, Colson Montgomery was already in the organization, but I think he's even better than, People thought he was the White Sox thought he was like, he's obviously really, really good. You know, they signed, they just signed Oscar Colossus, you know, he got the AAA in his debut. You know, the draft was really interesting with Noah Schultz and Peyton Paulette and Jonathan Cannon. You know, they had guys in the DSL emerge, you know, Ryan Burroughs. I, I don't even think they had signed him when we did our preseason last list last year. Cause he was an April signee You know, Ryan Burroughs, like who, I had never heard of you know a year ago it is really interesting. so I think there have been a lot of you know positive developments uh in the system and I think it's it's definitely deeper than it was twelve or eighteen months ago.
1: you hit on colson Montgomery. he's been our top prospect since they drafted him and this is over the course of multiple lists now, what kind of development have you seen from his game and what makes you encouraged that uh, he'll be among the league's top prospects moving forward?
3: Yeah, you know, I mean, look, we knew when they took him in the first round, you know, and, and he was, I think, everybody's White Sox top prospect as soon as they drafted him. You know, he was a really athletic kid. You know, he you know set the basketball scoring record as high school and could have walked on at Indiana in basketball if he'd gone to college. And you know, six foot four, lefty hitting shortstop with power. You know, you got all the Corey Seeger comparisons. And then, you know, you get to see him in his first full season of pro ball and, you know, just really advanced swing decisions. He doesn't chase pitches out of the zone. He lays off difficult strikes that are strikes that, you know, if you put in a play, you're probably getting yourself out. You know, I think we talked about this in the past. He didn't homer in his 26-game pro debut. He hit only... 11 homers last year, 96 games. And in some ways it's almost a positive because unlike a lot of young hitters, he's not selling out for power. He's, he's not you know, coming in with this first round bonus being like, Oh, I got to justify this. And he's just, I, what I really like about him. I think the most is, I think he's trying to just be the best hitter he can be. And the power will come when the power will come, which is, you know, it, it's easier said than done to have an approach like that. Um, I, you know, I mean, I think with any six foot four shortstop, you're always going to wonder, is he going to stay there long term? And I don't know if we know a definitive answer to that, but I do think like from what we've seen so far, you're, you gotta be fairly optimistic about it. He's got a quick first step. Like you said, he's athletic. He's got the arm. I think he's been a little bit better at shortstop too. So I, it's always to me a hugely positive sign when you have a guy who is a first round pick. Who's better, like immediately better than you thought he was going to be? Those guys tend to be pretty good big leaguers. Like, you know, it's not like when you take. You know, total opposite end of this spectrum. Cole Seamus was a non-drafted free agent and he opened some eyes last year. Well, it's like you're going to have some non-drafted free agents who are better than, than you thought or lower round picks are like, oh, that guy's better. But you don't often see the guy who, who goes, you know, in, in the first round, he's a 22nd overall pick. And you immediately your immediate looks at him You're like, oh, this guy's even better than we realize. That, that, that's a great sign, I think.
2: So just to follow up again, like I know you saw what you saw Colson at like the pre-draft combine or whatever, I think, and we had talked and I know you were impressed. Like, do you just think it's a matter of the fact that he was like a three sport Midwest kid and like kind of just, he didn't play any of the circuit stuff or, you know, he was also 19 and that's a big thing. I guess it's just, I don't know. It's kind of a surprise that he's, you know, kind of been as good as he's been to me.
3: Yeah. I mean, Look, we knew he was talented, but I, I think you know, I mean, he did some showcase stuff, maybe not as much as, as other guys did. I mean, I do think the, it, it's funny. I do think the age thing – now you're going to get my rant, little rant here about the age and, and the draft. I, I do think the age thing was held against him because he turned 19 at the end of February in his draft year. And there's a lot of teams that don't want 19-year-old high school kids. And I'll just throw out that the Bobby Witt Jr. was a 19-year-old high school kid. If you want to go way back, Manny Ramirez was a 19 year old high school kid. I mean, there's lots of 19 year old high school kids who are good players. And part of the reason is if you go in, a, when you do draft studies, you have to do them very carefully. And a thing you have to be careful of when you're doing draft studies, especially based on players who were drafted in the last 10 or 15 years. And it's always tricky too, because you have to go back a little further because you have to give guys time to develop because they're not going straight to the big leagues. You need to let their careers play out. Anyway, if you're doing any kind of draft study these days, you know, you're know you probably going back to like maybe 2005 to 2015 and, and seeing what happened going forward. Any draft study you do today where Mike Trout fits into whatever demographic you have to be careful of that because Mike Trout is so good, that Mike Trout is, is literally the equivalent of fifteen good draft picks rolled into one. I mean, because that, that that's how good he is. Um, and so, if Mike Trout shows up in your demographic, it's going to make that demographic look like it's it's the flat out best. And Mike Trout was seventeen, and so if you do this age study, it's going to show you, oh man, seventeen year olds—they're unbelievable. Well, not every like Mike Trout. Like if you if you weigh Mike Trout as a great player. But you don't count him. Like like if you just did it based on total war, Mike Trout winds up counting as like 15 good draft picks. And it skews your, your your list. And I think people have read a little too much into that. Yes, if, if everything's equal, you'd rather have the younger I'll give you another example. I loved Brett Beatty coming out of the draft a couple of years ago. And there were people who thought Brett Beatty – was just about the best high school hitter in that class and there were teams that flat out weren't going to take Brett Beatty because he was 19 I remember talking to one of those teams because it was hard we always try to our draft list is not hey this is who Jonathan Mayo and I like there's some of that obviously in it but we try to reflect industry consensus and I was like having a hard time like where are we supposed to rank Brett Beatty because their teams are out on him I remember talking to a friend of mine who worked for team and I was like where are you guys on Brett Beatty and he's like we wouldn't draft him because he's 19 we would just flat out wouldn't take him and I'm like well, what happens if Brett Beatty goes to the University of Texas, which is where he was committed, and he tears it up for two years, and he's a draft-eligible sophomore, and, and he hits like everybody thinks he's going to hit? And the guy laughed. He's like, oh, we take him in the first round. Um, and, and, like, that makes no sense to me. So I, I do think that stuff got held against Colson Montgomery. Um, but, but I'm want age rant thing because I can't stop, and, and then I'll, 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 I'll recenter myself. Like, I always joke, like, this would be an over, overly simplistic way to do a draft study. But let's say you were doing a draft study and you are looking at college, high school, hitter, pitcher, by state. Th- that's how you were breaking it down. Well, if you did this study, which I admit would be overly simplistic, and you wouldn't approach it exactly that way. When Mike Trout's draft year 2009 and you would have been looking at high school position players from New Jersey, you would have been like, oh, man, Billy Roll's not working out. And Eric Duncan didn't work out. And Jack Cust is so one-dimensional. You know, these big money New Jersey high school players don't work out, so don't take them. Don't take the big the high school player, high school hitter from New Jersey. It's a bad move. And then as soon as Mike Trout hits, if you were doing that that study, which again would be overly simplistic, it would tell you flat out the best thing you could get in the draft is a high school hitter from New Jersey because Mike Trout. Like, and it's just like. I, I just did people read too much into that study. You have to look at the talent of the player first. And I do think, I, I know, like, I always thought, I'm not saying I thought Colson Montgomery was going to be this good. But when I was doing our draft coverage in 2021, Colson Montgomery sounded really interesting. Yeah, he's athletic. You know, maybe he moves off short, but, like, 6'4", Corey Seager, like, that all sounds intriguing to me. Um, and... There were teams, like, I, I think for, like, a lot, big part of the spring, it's like, ah, that guy's, like, a second- or third-round pick. And a lot of it was because he was 19. Um, and, and I just think if you can – yes, you can factor that into your thinking somewhat. If I had a 19-year-old with the tools of a Colson Montgomery and I had an 18-year-old with the tools of a Colson Montgomery and I thought they were the same player, I'd rather have the younger guy. But talent's talent, and you got to look at talent first, age a, as a very secondary consideration – at least in my mind. And so, you know, good on the white side. I mean, look, it it doesn't hurt. I mean, we all know Mike Shirley likes his Indiana guys. Um, And, uh, you know, Mike, I had an affinity and obviously knew Colson probably better than just about any scouting director in in baseball. But that was, that was a great pick.
2: So the other guy at the top of the list is Oscar Colas. You know, I know the white Sox have had a, you know, they've, they've signed a lot of Cuban players, right? And some of them, Yoelki Cespedes and your Yolbert Sanchez's looks like, you know, maybe some minimal impact here. But I think Oscar Colas looks like he might be pretty good, even with some of the shortcomings that maybe he has. You know, it looks like he might be the opening day right fielder. What are your thoughts on that plan? And then just in general, his first professional season.
3: And again, you know, here's another guy who I think it's very encouraging. I think he was even a little bit better in his debut than I mean, I don't know if he was for you guys, but like he got to AAA, he hit 314. I mean, look, we knew he had power. We knew he could throw, but he showed some ability to make adjustments at the plate. It seemed like he made better decisions and was a more polished hitter, more disciplined hitter as he rose through the minors. Um, you know, he showed the ability to use the whole field. He showed some two strike adjustments. He showed the ability, okay, you know, making some adjustments against left handers. So I, I think there was more feel for hitting. Um, you know, that I thought we'd see, or at least in his first year, I think you can make a case. I think he is our best right field option. Isn't he? I mean, like if we're, we're looking at, like I respect Gavin sheets, Gavin sheets shouldn't be playing right field. Um, Gavin sheets is a first baseman DH. I know they've put him in the outfield, but he's not, I mean, he's not an outfielder. He, he just isn't. Um, and so If you want to factor in guys who could, who should be playing right field, he's, I think he is their best option. I, I, I I mean, granted you want, I mean, I don't think spring training performance means a lot, but you, you, you want to get a feel for, you know, how it looks in spring training. But if it were up to me, I play him in right. Well, I mean, that would be my right fielder. What would you guys do?
2: Yeah, we, I think we're in agreement that it has to be him. And look, one of the debates we've had, Jim, on the podcast is just the environment In Charlotte, some of the stuff that Oscar Colas needs to figure out or do, right? I just, I just feel like he could go to Charlotte, still have those bad habits do very well and come up up anyway and still have the same problem. So you might as well start him in the big leagues.
3: Yeah, I I agree. I, I agree. I mean, I would, and you know, especially here's the thing too. I mean. It's a very secondary consideration, but with the way the rules work now, if Oscar Colossus is on your like he just because you have him on the opening day roster doesn't mean he has to stay up all year. If he comes up and he hits 170 in April and he looks overmatched, you can send him to Triple A. But if you put him on the opening day roster and he has a good year, and let's say he wins Rookie of the Year, you get a first round pick. And so, like I'm trying to win. I think he's the best guy. I, I don't necessarily feel like the White Sox always have made. Too many recent decisions based on, hey, like maybe we should consider defense to some extent because it helps our pitchers if we have good defenders out there. And, you know, Colas is not a gold glover, but I mean, Gavin Sheets is a first baseman playing right field. Like Andrew Vaughn was a first baseman playing left field. Ilo Jimenez was a DH playing the outfield. Like those things aren't helping your pitching staff when you have guys like that running around the outfield.
1: What's your opinion on the White Sox in 2023, Jim? I'm looking forward to Andrew Vaughn's season. I think he's going to really come into his own and showcase why we loved him so much coming out of the draft in 19. But, you know, there's some movement on the roster. The pitching staff needs to stay healthy. Your assessment of where they stack up against the rest of the AL Central?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of is like last year, honestly, where I like the team on paper. I don't feel like the divisions deep. I mean, the Tigers aren't going to win, the Royals aren't going to win. The Twins should be better. I feel I think the Guardians have a good team. I it's weird, like I think a lot of their hitters and pitchers are like the same kind of profile and I think a lot of things went well. Like last year a lot of things didn't go well for the Twins, a lot of things didn't go well for the White Sox and I feel like most things went well for the Guardians and I feel like those teams are all going to regress in terms of Good fortune, bad fortune, back to the mean. So I think they're all kind of there. I, I still think the White Sox have the same problems they had a year ago, where if their starting lineup's healthy, it's a pretty good starting lineup. But I don't see much depth. If guys get hurt, I don't see players that are going to slot in and, and pick up the slack. And it's kind of the same thing with the pitching staff. If you know, I mean, Dylan Cease was great last year. Like, you know, Dylan Cease and Lance Lynn and Luis Giolito and, you know, who knows what happens with Mike Clevenger and Michael Kopech. If they all combine and they make 150 starts, they're probably in really good shape. I mean, they've got some, I mean, I know they've, you know, lost Hendricks for now, but like, you know, I mean, bullpen, you know, has got some interesting arms. Like if they can keep guys healthy, yeah, I like them, but I, you know, I don't know. That everybody stays, you know, mostly healthy in a given year. I, I just don't see. I, I feel like they're kind of painted themselves in the same corner. If they get a couple guys hurt, I, I don't know where the reinforcements come from. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not. I know he played well for him. We'll see on Elvis Andrews over the course of a full season, but whatever, if he bats ninth, okay. And, you know, if he doesn't work out, maybe it's Lennon Sosa. And if it's not Lennon Sosa, you know, maybe it's, it's you know, Rodriguez or Ramos, you know, comes up and, and they reconfigure things. But, like, from a starting pitching standpoint, I mean, I guess what? Davis Martin is 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 the next guy up. He's okay. Um, I've always liked Jonathan Stever, but, like, he's feels like he's barely pitched in like the last two, three years. Like I, I just don't see a ton of starting pitching depth. And, you know, very rarely do you get through it with five starters.
1: You mentioned lack of depth in the immediate sense in 2023. And I'm looking at the top 30 and the farm system as a whole. There's a lot of young talent and especially Cuban infused as well. It mean, Shout out to Marco Patti and, and the work that the White Sox front office has done to really bolster the talent I think in committing to some of these young players in the draft and internationally what does it mean though for the White Sox at this stage of their competitive window as well as the way that they're trying to reinforce talent in their farm system considering they're among the bottom 10 farm systems according to us at least around Major League Baseball but when I look at it a lot of it has to do with unknown and age and I think that kind of contradicts or at least it hinders what the White Sox are trying to do now at the big league level because, you know, they need to allow these players to develop.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, they are in a little bit tough situation because, you know, their players, their big leaguers are getting older, they're getting more expensive, Um, you know, their competitive window, they might, I don't think their window is going to close and I think they're fortunate. I don't think the AL Central is a powerhouse division by any means. But at the same time, they may need to retool. And where they're, they're stuck a little bit is they don't have a lot of guys ready to step in if guys get hurt, and you know which we saw last year. I mean, that undermined last year's club. That's what killed them last year. And like, OK, their prospects, a lot of them are a year older and then so they're closer. But if the White Sox need help now... They're probably going to have to trade guys rather than be able to like like okay like I like Sean Burke you know Sean Burke needs he has good stuff he needs to throw more strikes you know Sean Burke may be able to help at some point this year but he might not you know I, I like Jose Rodriguez you know like maybe Jose Rodriguez could take over at second base at some point this year but you know he's also going to be 22 maybe he won't be quite ready and so you could also get in a situation where it's like hey we have two or three holes we need to plug and we don't have guys ready. So then you're stuck like, okay, do we trade to fill those holes and give up young talent? So that's, I I think that's where you wish the farm system was better acclimated or or not acclimated, but better, you know, more more prepared to help the big league club sooner rather than later. I I feel like with a lot of these guys, we're really talking about, you know, like they're going to be ready to make a big league impact you know, end of 2024, beginning of 2025. And so that doesn't really help you the next couple of years.
2: What would you like to see out of Noah Schultz and Peyton Paulette this season?
0: Um,
3: I, I, well, I mean, and this is almost like a cliche, but like, I think the number one thing is you just want to see them both stay healthy and, and pitch a full season, you know, with, with whatever limits, I don't think they're going to throw Peyton Paulette 120 innings, but I mean, Noah Schultz had mono and I think he pitched, I don't know what, like five innings in high school last year. He did pitch in a, in a summer college league, but I, I you know, and Payne Paulette, you know, who injured his elbow at the end of the twenty-one season, um, was going to try to get through it with rehab, and then his elbow was bothering him in January, and he had Tom, I can't remember if he had Tommy John January or February, so he didn't pitch at all last year. I, I think with both those guys, you'd like to see them, you know, whatever their innings. Let's say it's. 80, I don't know what the number is. Let's, let's say 80 innings is a target. You just want to see those guys hit their innings target and, you know, be able to get acclimated to pro ball. I mean, they're, they're both those guys. I mean, you're talking about guys who could be frontline starters. It's that kind of upside. I mean, no Schultz, you know, it's, it, it's, he's six nine two twenty. 220 I mean, I write this all the time. I mean, of course you're six, two twenty lefty with a low arm slot. You know, you can't help but think Randy Johnson and he's not like i mean Randy Johnson's like in the 99th percentile in terms of left-handed power pitcher so he's not that he's not that guy but what people don't remember about Randy Johnson is Randy Johnson like like was kind of a mess mechanically and strike wise like he got shelled for 3 years at Southern Cal he didn't really throw strikes i think until he was like 25 or 26 and Noah Schultz has really good like it's unusually athletic and great body control for a 6 foot 9 teenager. Um, he's got a wipeout slider. You know, he's 92-96 in short stints last year. Um, so you just want to see him healthy and working on that stuff. But he for his size and age is pretty polished. And then with Paulette, you just want to see him get back to where he was before he got hurt. I mean, he he might have had the best curveball in that draft last year. I mean, he didn't pitch last year to show it to anybody, but I mean, the curveball is that good. You know, the the fastball hits 99 miles an hour. It's usually 93-95-96 um, you know change ups has got some good life to it you know he there were some Walker Bueller comps you know kind of you know from a physical standpoint he had better stuff and probably a little less polish than than Bueller had at the same stage of careers and, and Bueller had Tommy John surgery um before he began his pro career. So I, I think with those guys you're just hoping to, that they show the stuff that they've shown in the past and you get you know 80 90 whatever whatever the target is out of them healthy
0: We were talking pitching there with Noah Schultz and Peyton
1: Paulette, and I want to take it further with more young pitchers within the farm system. Now, I'm optimistic about several names, mainly because a lot of them have plus pitches. Specifically, I want to hit on two names here, Christian Mana and Norhe Vera. They, they went in separate directions last year. Christian Mana is skyrocketing while Norhe Vera didn't really pitch much and were kind of down. And on the list, it kind of shows your opinion on Jorge Vera's status at this point of his development. Um, what's your evaluation there of the last year plus of those two players?
3: Yeah, you know Mania's interesting. You know he, you know it's weird. I have scouts who think he's fairly ordinary, and I have other guys who and, you know, who like him more than that. And, and he missed bats. He got to you know he's part of Project Birmingham, but he pitched well in High A last year as, as a nineteen-year-old. Um, you know he's interesting. I think he's more of that middle to back of the rotation type of guy because it's not overwhelming stuff. You know, the fastball is ninety two, ninety four. I think the curveball is the best pitch. The fastballs, you know, plays solid. The rest of the stuff's pretty average. But he's, you know, he's good. He's shown aptitude. He's athletic. He throws strikes more than a lot of their guys, and he keeps getting better. And he's only twenty. So I'm, I'm like, he's a guy who could make another, you know, leap four. like, if you told me he threw a couple ticks harder this year, that would really raise his profile. So he's super interesting. Vera, you know, Vera's intriguing, but he's barely pitched. You know, he had some mild sh- shoulder soreness in 2021 and he was in the DSL kind of for tax purposes, like a lot of the Cubans do. And, you know, t- 20, 21-year-old Norhe Vera facing, you know, DSL kids is not really meaningful action. Um, and then last year he had a lat strain. And so his season started late and he just needs to pitch. Like I, I would throw him like in terms of development goals, we, we need Vare to get, you know, a hundred something innings and show us what he can do. And, you know, it's like, okay, you know, what is he, you know, he was 95 to a hundred in the DSL. He was 90 to 93 at the end of last season. Like his slider was a sharp mid eighties breaker in the DSL. And it was an upper 70s slurve at the end of last season. Um, You know, change up is, you know, the control or very much kind of works in progress. So you like the raw material with Norahe Vera and he's, I wouldn't say it's like a make or break year, but like he's been in the system. Now this is his third season, in the system. And we really haven't seen very much out of him. And the stuff was kind of pedestrian toward the end of last year in double A. So like with him, I, I think it, I think it's not a make or break year, but I do think it's a significant year. Like we, we need to see the Norje Vera that they saw, you know, when he was working out for clubs and it was this real live arm. And, and then he kind of showed that stuff. It was only, I think, what, 19 innings in the DSL. There, there's upside there, but there's also a lot of variance because we just haven't seen it very often and, and certainly
2: not in the U.S. So I think one of the things that has just like kind of hurt the system in general and like like I was a fan of them trying to get younger in drafts and like they did it with prep pitching and we know how volatile the demographic is obviously but like it seems like of late Jared Kelly and Matthew Thompson like may have turned a bit of a corner I don't know if they'll ever you know, reach like, you know, some of the original ceilings projected or anything like that. But it seems like they've kind of figured things out a little bit to where they're a little bit better. And then Tanner McDougall seemed to have his stuff return for instructs for, you know, every report that I saw. So I guess just like that group of guys, like your thoughts on them.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, with Thompson and Kelly, you know, I, I think the White Sox are optimistic. They're like, look, they're making some progress. Like, you know, like hope they continue to improve. Uh, You know, organizations are always going to be like it with guys who kind of fall in that bucket. Uh, I guess I'm, I mean, I ranked him in the middle of the list. Uh, (laughs) I'm trying to, I I guess the best way for me to put it, like my own personal opinion, I just want those guys to prove it to me. Like Matthew Thompson, okay, he's athletic. You know, he can touch 97, but his fastball gets knocked around, especially when he doesn't command it. His curveball could be a plus pitch, but he doesn't stay on top of it. He threw more strikes last year. You know, maybe it's average control. Like you just see it—you you see bits and pieces and flashes. Okay, he's going to be a starter. He's got to do do that stuff more regularly and have it all at the same time. Not, you know, oh the fastball is looking better tonight. Oh, the curveball is looking better. Oh, he's throwing strikes. Like it just has to be consistent. You know, Jared Kelly—he's even harder for me to figure out. Like. He's gotten in better shape. I mean, he kind of let himself go during the pandemic year before they made him a second-round pick and paid him $3 million. His body looked awful. There, I don't think there's anyone to pick I mean, just his body looked awful in his first year in pro ball. He was terrible. He didn't stay healthy. He got in better shape, stayed healthier. He still walked 47 guys in 77 innings last year. He struck out only 71 you know you could see the plus fastball you could see a plus changeup the breaking balls okay There haven't been strikes like okay i mean yes he was much better in 2022 than he was in 2021 but he was terrible in 2021 so i, I don't know like i i feel like if you if you made me say okay like and, and look pitchers like they don't develop in linear fashion especially compared to hitters those guys are still relatively young like I, I, think you're looking at multi inning relievers. I, I just, I, I have a hard time believing that those guys are really going to be big league starting pitchers. Like, look, they're young. Maybe they could turn it around. They just haven't shown any kind of consistency or, or reliability for me to believe that. You know, McDougal's super interesting. Um, I saw him at the uh, at the first draft combine. He was, you know, he helped himself more than just about anybody there. He had high spin rates. He had, like, really good pitch metrics on the fastball with induced vertical break. And, you know, he was a guy who was inconsistent as a a high school senior in Nevada, and that kind of propelled him into the fifth round. He got an over-slap bonus, and he blew out his elbow and had Tommy John. But but I heard the same thing you did. Like, his stuff was looking good in the instructional league, back up to 97. Breaking pitches looked good. We just haven't seen him. I mean, and he was inconsistent with his strikes and, and, and consistency of stuff in high school, and you know, like, in some ways, I mean, I haven't ranked behind the other two guys because he just hasn't done anything as a pro in some ways, I guess I'm more optimistic because and maybe I maybe this is a, a silly way to look at it, but he hasn't gone out and struggled like Thompson and Kelly have, so like I'm holding that against Thompson and Kelly, and I'm not holding against McDougal who honestly hasn't had a chance to fail yet. um but yeah, he's he's interesting, like. I guess, personally, I might have a little prospect fatigue with Thompson and Kelly. Like, you know, I ranked McDougal behind him because he hasn't had the chance to do anything or prove anything yet. Like, in my gut, I probably, well, I'll put it in terms of guys becoming a big league starter. I think Tanner McDougal has a better chance. But part of that may be that he hasn't gone out and had the chance to struggle in in pro ball. um, Whereas the other two guys have, have struggled mightily
2: yeah I think that makes lots of sense I think uh I, I think we agree you know I, I don't know how big of a deal this is Jim, but like the the White Sox often are criticized by the fan base for stuff like you know like signing your Kendall graveman's and just not even like one signing right but it seems like they spend a lot of money on their bullpen and fans would prefer I think that they just kind of make their own bullpen guys and it seems like this off season and it might just be a one-off right but they've added Gregory Santos, Nick Avila, and Franklin German. All three are on the top 30 list. Just, you know, do they seem like intelligent, low-cost flyers that maybe they should do more often?
3: Yeah, I mean, especially when you're trying to win. I mean, this isn't a rebuilding team. And I like all three of those moves. I'm not saying they're going to be closers or anything like that. I mean, I don't necessarily, you know, I mean, look, relievers are volatile. So who knows, like, if they're going to hit on one of them or two of them or all three of them or whatever. But those are all guys who are ready to pitch in the big leagues, you know I don't think my, they really have much to prove in the minors, and it could all help the big league club. I, I think there's probably the most optimism surrounding, surrounding Avila, who's kind of a crazy rags-to-riches story. He was a 26th round pick out of Long Beach State you know, in 2019. The pandemic comes. He doesn't pitch. He got knocked around when he was starting in high A, when he got to full season ball in 2021. And then they made him a reliever. I mean, he led all minor league relievers – with a 1.14 ERA last season. The Giants actually have a number of of interesting relief prospects, and they just didn't have a 40-man spot for him. But he's got – he's like a five-pitch reliever. It's kind of fun to watch. It's two-seam, four-seam, a cutter, slider, curveball. The cutter and the four-seam are probably the best pitches. He can mix them all. Uh, He throws a lot of strikes. He gets lefties and righties out. I think he's more – of that, you know, sixth or seventh inning guy, then eighth or ninth inning guy, but he's like—I think he's pretty competent. and He throws strikes. Now Santos, who also came from the Giants, they DFA'd him. It was again another roster crunch, and he wound up, you know, coming to the Giant to the White Sox for Cade McClure. He's got the wipeout stuff, and you could dream on him being a closer, but he hasn't thrown strikes. I mean, he's. His fastball last year sat at 99 miles an hour and hit 102. Um, it's pretty straight. I mean, it's 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 velocity over life. But then his slider is probably even better. It's 87 to 90 to 93 with two-plane depth, and it had a 45% swing and miss rate. And if he can throw strikes and locate his pitches, that's an eighth or ninth inning guy. So there's upside there. And then, you know, German, again, was kind of a you know roster move, like, like I think they're just opportunistic getting all these guys. You know, Avila Rule Five, Santos in, in German when they got DFA'd. You know, Santo, I mean German, former starter, uh, came from the Yankees in the Adam Ovino sal- salary dump, and he was kind of like low to mid nineties as a starter, and once he moved to the pen, ninety six to ninety eight, up to hundred with a lot of riding action. Um, he's got a a mid eighties slider. He's got a splitter, which is pretty interesting at times. He doesn't command it as well, but yeah, I, I think all three of those guys are, you know, you know, ready to pitch in the big leagues from the standpoint of there's really nothing for them left to prove. And those are all good, good depth arms. Uh, you know, and, and yeah, I mean, if you're, those are the types of guys that if you're trying to win, like. You, you, they give you bullpen depth, and you know they they basically gave up what a hundred you know a hundred thousand dollars to draft Avila, and they traded Kendall Graveman and Theo Denlinger Denlinger to get Santos and Franklin and German. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Like I so yeah, I really I I, I like those moves
1: a lot. Jim, you've been so kind with your time. Few more for you, and I want to take you back to a player that you mentioned earlier in the podcast, and that's Panamanian middle infielder Ryan Burroughs. You ranked him 11 on MLB Pipelines list. This is a name that's popping up. Uh, he turns 19 in August. Yep. Shortstop. You can play the position. What are your um, evaluations there, and and what do the White Sox have in this player?
3: Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, like I said before, like he was not a guy who was on my radar really. I mean, he was part of their 2022 international class, but he signed, you know, he signed for $75,000. So he's not a big time guy and just scouts who saw him thought he like had advanced hitting ability. Uh, I mean, you can't read too much. He didn't even tear up the DSL. I mean, look, he was age appropriate. He was 17. He had 266. He had a 785 ops. He controlled the strike zone reasonably well. I mean, DSL stats really don't mean much, but like he held his own. It wasn't like he dominated like the pitch recognition and the strike zone management are really advanced for a teenager. He, he, you know, has high exit velocities and with the hitting ability and how hard he hits the ball and the projectable strength in a six foot two frame, you could see, you know, probably average power there. He's, you know, I'd say he's an average shortstop right now. Like that you project him out. Most teams, you want a guy like, like, average is below average for, for big league defense for shortstop if that makes it, most teams want a, a better than average defender at shortstop so I think he's more like he, he might wind up at third base or second base but um you know he, he shows solid speed right now he's got solid arm strength he's bilingual he is an intelligent kid in fact the reason he signed late was you know he wanted like I think his family wanted him to to complete most of his high school work in Panama. And then he went back in the fall to get his, to get his diploma. He's charismatic. I mean, it's really good makeup. And, you know, it's funny, like you do this list and you don't want to go crazy over a guy in the DSL, especially guy, you know, like it's not a big international pedigree signing for $75,000. And it was like, you know, I mean, compared to like, you know, I've got him at number 11 and Rivera Vera signed for 1.5 million at number 12. But it's like, it's like, you know what? Like just guys like his bat. And if I'm going to bet on one tool, I'll bet on guys who can hit and he can do some other things. And the makeup's great. Like I, you know, we'll see him. I I would assume the Arizona complex league and, you know, maybe he hits his way up to, to low a by the end of the year. But like, this is a guy, like if you told me, you know, maybe a year and a half from now, once he gets to full season ball, that Ryan bros is like, you know, at that point Montgomery and and Oscar Colossus will, will probably have graduated, but like the, that Burroughs could be like a top three prospect in the system. I could believe it now. I mean, look, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, he's a long, long ways away, but guys really liked him. And not just people like scouts outside the organization, like we're like, this kid's pretty interesting. So that's, I mean, that's a great job of scouting by the White Sox to find, you know, $75,000 is kind of an afterthought international market Um, that that one could be, I mean, look, I mean, he's not a sure thing. But he's he's super. I, yeah, as you guys could tell, I, he he really intrigues me. I think he's kind of exciting, and you just like hear so many good things about him. Um, I, I'm curious I'm very curious to see how he develops over the next couple of years. He he could be he could be pretty interesting.
1: You think about the currency of the game. This I guess in the modern era, a 19 year old soon to be player in the farm system with so much upside, without you know a lot of stuff on paper that shows he's failing may give the White Sox some leverage and not to say that they want to deal them, but it's just an example of something um, or a strategy that teams can use. And you want to see personally you, as in me, uh, I'd like to see the White Sox gather more of these types of talents to have that flexibility to either, you know, watch them develop or use them to make their team better in the immediate sense at the big league level. I think it's fascinating how the modern athlete is developing at such a quicker pace than what we're used to seeing over the last 10 years. Um, really interesting and good stuff, Jim, on Burroughs. Now, I wanted to close it out from my end with this. A, a number of names on the back end of your top 30 list on pipeline.com. Curious if there's anybody that jumps off the page at you that you're most intrigued. Uh, I'm interested in seeing Jonathan Stevers 2023. I wonder what's going to become of this player after we really haven't seen him pitch. I mean, he had a cup of coffee last year in in Charlotte made one appearance in 2021. Obviously he debuted in 20 at the big league level. They're just questions about a player that we were really high on just a few years ago, but outside of Stevers, is there anybody else that you are looking at on the back half of your list that's intriguing?
3: Yeah, I'm with you on Stever. Like, um, I think at one point I had him ranked as their second-best pitching prospect behind Michael Kopech, and then he's just – his stuff and control haven't been the same since he had forearm soreness in, in spring training 2020, lat surgery in 21, you know, he made three appearances at the end of the season. Yeah, we just haven't seen him pitch to know where, where the stuff stands. But like when he was healthy – it was 92-98 with a plus spike curveball. So we'll see. I, I I mean, if he could get back to where he was, I mean, that would be a boon for the White Sox. The three guys I'd throw out, like I have on the back half of the list, who, from talking to people and just my own curiosity, who I think intrigued me the most, are, I think, Wilfred Varis, who's a corner uh, corner infielder, whose father, Wilton, played in the big leagues, and he's a cousin of Fernando Tatis Jr. He's Got some of the best raw power in the system. Um, needs to get some more polish as a hitter. But he's a guy to kind of keep an eye on. He's 20. I think he'll be in A this year. He's one. A guy who we really haven't seen a whole lot of, even in college, is Trell Tatum, an, an outfielder, who was like a, a part-time guy his first three years at NC State. Then he was part of their, their College World Series team. Um, if you want to dream on Trell Tatum, you can look at the, I don't know if you guys have seen, there's a YouTube video. He had a massive home run. They beat Vanderbilt and Jack lighter one, nothing. And he also had a crazy bat flip too. And so he's, he's like a well above average runner. He, he's got some like untapped potential to plate. Cause he's, he only has 600 at bats in the last five years between college and the minors. He had a 50 game suspension last year because he tested positive for amphetamines. Then he was going to AFL and he hurt his ankle. And he only played in six games but like he, he's one of the better runners. There's some offensive ability. He can play center. Just need to see what that guy can do. Um, he had 135 at bats last year. So like, he's a guy who could come up and then this guy was a little bit old for the DSL, but Lloydell Ciapelli is kind of an interesting kid. He's a second base. I guess he's not a kid. He's 21, but he's kind of a, Slightly, I'm not saying he's Jose Altuve, but he's kind of built like a little bit bigger Jose Altuve. He's like listed 5'8, 187. As we all know, if you're listed at 5'8, you're probably not 5'8. Like, you know, like they usually cheat a little bit on the, on the shorter guys. But like, he played well in Cuba. He's MVP at the 1500 World Cup international tournament. And he had a big year in the DSL. Granted, he was older, but he's got hitting ability. He could be a guy who hits for some average with 15 home runs. We need to see him against age-appropriate competition. Like, I don't think it's out of the question that he plays in high A this year. But uh, he's – I I have him behind the other two guys. But those are three hitters that, that – like, you're talking to scouts from other organizations too – they're like, those guys are kind of like, everybody kind of has them on their radar and they, they kind of want to see, they're still trying to figure them out, but they want to see what those guys do in 2023.
2: Awesome, Jim. And again, thanks for joining us. I just had a, you know, a couple of draft questions at the sure. end. You know, I'm, I'm interested in this class and, and mostly cause it, it doesn't seem like there's ever this many college shortstops. I'm sure it has to do with the fact of the five round draft in 2020 and the ramifications of that. But then even. Like some of the college pitching early and it just, you know, I just, I like this draft class, but looking back at the White Sox, you know, it's Garrett Crochet, Colson Montgomery, Noah Schultz, three very different profiles. I guess, I guess you could say that Mike Shirley likes premium upside, right? But it is three different demographics for sure. Like with the 15th pick, do you consider the White Sox basically a true wild card at this point where they could take any demographic?
3: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. And, and you know what? I think that's a good thing. I think, like, <laughs> you'll get another one of my sermons here. Uh, one of the things I think people lose sight of with the baseball draft is, okay, so now we're, we're 20 rounds. That's still 600-something players are going to get drafted. But in a typical draft, and I've studied this for years, in, in a typical draft, there's six to eight guys who are true stars. And then, if you're lucky, there's another two dozen guys who are good big leaguers with consistent careers and then everybody else in draft, you'll have guys who have breakout years and, and do that. But you have guys who basically have, you know, their performance goes up and down and cup of coffee guys. Like every year I do a story where I go back and I look 10 years earlier, if you redrafted the first round, you know, who would the first round picks be? And usually like the 30th pick and these guys have had decent careers but I don't think anybody would be like, oh, that guy's a first round caliber talent. But like the 30th picks guys like John Jaso or Tommy Hunter or Alex, you know, Claudio, and it's like, wow, that's the 30th best player from a draft. Like there just aren't like like 30 stars in the draft. And so when you if you're one of these teams, it's like, oh, we, we, we want young guys or oh, we don't want high school guys because there's too much risk involved, you're cutting yourself out. Like you already have a very small group of potentially good players and you're 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 cutting yourself out you're, you're making your odds of getting those guys smaller if you're saying well we won't take a pitcher in the first round or we don't want a 19 year old and so i think the fact you just look at the fact that they took high school hitter high school pitcher uh, uh who am i forget Oh, college pitcher like that shows that they're taking the be- like who they think the best player is and then that's good so i i like that um but yeah i mean picking at 15 i, I do i mean I think everybody's a wild card right now. Cause nobody knows who anybody's going to pick. I, I do think, I think it's a solid draft overall. Like if you're going twenty eighty scale, I would probably go 55. I think the college hitters are the strength of the draft. There's good college pitching. There's some intriguing high school position players too. I think the weakest part is, is high school pitchers who generally aren't going to be top 15 picks anyway. Um, I mean, I, I've joked, <laughs> I've joked with Mike Shirley. I'm sure like in Mike Shirley's dream scenario, he'd love to get Max Clark. Who's the best high school player in the draft and Hills from Indiana. And, you know, Mike Shirley loves his Indiana guys and everybody likes Max Clark and he's not getting to 15. So that's not going to happen, but you know, I, I think they could be in the mix. Yeah. You, know, you know, again, this is early, but just throwing out some random names. If they went college pitcher, you know, it could be, you know, maybe somebody like a, uh, like a Will Sanders, you know. You mentioned college shortstops. You maybe you could have like a Matt Shaw or Maliahuna in that mix. You know, high school shortstop guy like Kevin McGonigal. I, I think one of the big sleepers, high school shortstop wise, is a kid named Cooper Pratt. Um, but yeah, I, like I, I, we don't have any idea what they're going to do right now. But I think you're at least encouraged, you know, just looking at it this far in advance, like, they should get a pretty good player at 15. There's some years where you're like, oh, man, like, there's 8 or 10 guys I like and then it drops off. I think, you know, I mean, they won't get as good players if they were picking, say, 5, obviously. But I do think there's there's enough depth in the first round of this draft that they should get a pretty good player at 15.
2: And then another high upside local guy, I'm, I'm from the southwest suburbs, Dylan Head, people down here kind of think he's, you know, one of the best position players they've seen, in a, you know, in a while just – you know, in the Chicagoland area, it's homewood Flossmore High School. What can you tell the listeners about him?
3: Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And, and he, people like the talent. They love the kid. Um, he, you know, he, he's one of the faster players. He's probably a 70 runner on the 28th scale. He's one of the faster players among the, like, legitimate top three round prospects in the draft. And my least favorite profile is the guy who can really run and not do anything else. And that's not Dylan Head because Dylan Head can really run, but he also can hit. Um, You know, the the, you know he he can play quality center field. You know, I think he's a guy who can can definitely hit and get on base. And I think it comes down to how high he goes. Comes down to how much power you think he's going to have. You know, he's not super physical. He does it. You know, he's got some bad speed. He he can pull the ball a little bit for some pop, but he's not real physical right now. And all the guys I talked to about him basically said the same thing. Like, I think if the draft were today, Dylan would be early second round, maybe a supplemental first round pick. If he, if he, you know, shows, if he gets stronger and does a better job of driving the ball, you know, and the rest of his game stays the same, then I think it's easy to take that guy. In the... Like if you think Dylan head has average power, he's a first round pick. And if you don't like, and you think he's just going to be say, you know, 12 to 15 home run guy, but he's going to be a solid hitter and he can really run and he can really play center field, you know, then you're probably taking him in that 30 to 50 range, but he's, I, I would think he's going to go really good. You know, people, you know, love the kid too. Like it's good makeup. Like he's like, like I, I've heard the same thing you have, like, like he's one of the better position players to come out of the area recently. I mean, to compare him to say Ed Howard, you know, I, I, it's shortstop versus center fielder. I think there's, more can like Ed got mixed review. Like there are people who really believed in Ed's bat and there were people who didn't believe in Ed's bat and he's been hurt with the Cubs. so We haven't really been able to see what he can actually do, but like Dylan head is a more advanced hitter than Ed Howard was at the same stage of their careers. Ed had more power potential and it also looked like a gold glove shortstop, which is why Ed went in the middle of the first round. But, but Dylan, I think everybody would tell you is a better he has more hitting ability than Ed Howard hit and you feel better that he's going to be able to hit pro pitching and big league pitching than Ed Howard. So yeah, he's, he's super interesting uh, for sure. You know, in terms of the, in terms of the White Sox getting him, I think they're just, they're not in a good spot. Um, Cause I, I don't think you take him at 15 and I don't think he gets to him at 51.
1: I know uh, James and I are very much looking forward to watching Dylan play. Pleasure to have him here locally, of course. Jim, do you have any uh, trips planned, whether it's business or pleasure, coming up?
3: Oh, um, guy, well, I, you know it's funny. I've been working on finishing top thirties. I, I went to Arizona for like a weekend at the beginning of the college season to broadcast the Desert Invitational, but I haven't been to spring training yet. And and, and I, I actually one of the camps I will, will be hitting is White Sox camp, and I got Cubs camp coincidentally. But um, I will be going to Arizona for five days and running around, and then going to Florida for five days and running around. So so spring training is the next trip on my agenda. And then once I get through spring training, the draft will become my primary focus once again.
1: Well, I think this year's spring training is unique, obviously, with the World Baseball Classic coming up. Thoughts on seeing more prospects participate in in camps now because of the World Baseball Classic?
3: Yeah, and I'll be honest. like I like to go later, and I am. To go just watch, you know, th- there's nothing better to me than to, like, watch players on the backfields. Like, mm-hmm. if I go to Glendale and I can watch – I did this last year. Um, I did it both at Dodgers camp and White Sox. I think when I, was, when I was in White Sox camp, it was inter-squad day. But they had two games going on. I saw Oscar Colossus hit a triple. I think I saw West Cass hit a home run. Colson Montgomery looked good. But, um, you know, you're watching – I think it was White Sox double-A, triple-A on one field, White Sox high-A, low-A on the other field. And then when I went to Dodgers camp a couple days later, I think they had the Dodgers were hosting the White Sox double-A and triple-A teams, and the White Sox were hosting the Dodgers high-A and low-A clubs on their side, but it was the same thing. I'm watching – maybe I had – Maybe you know what? I take that back. I had – I was high-A, low-A that I saw, but I'm watching Dodgers play White Sox on two fields. So – (laughs) I'll be honest. I don't even care who's in big league camp. I want to go watch the guys on the backfields. I want to go see Noah Schultz. Like if I'm lucky throw on the backfields, I want to go see Ryan Burroughs in person. Like that, that's, that's what I love. So I, I, I I am super excited about seeing that. Um, But yeah, it's cool. You do get guys, get guys who get more opportunities in big league camp, but like, I want to go see, you know, these guys, you know, I want to, like, I don't, Know where Peyton Paulette is in terms of throwing right now? He had surgery, I guess, 13 months ago. Maybe Peyton Paulette's throwing. Like those are the mm-hmm. guys I want to see. Um, you know, look, I'm a Georgia grad, so I can enjoy seeing Jonathan Cannon. You know, type of thing. Like that's that that's that's my. I, I love that. You can tell. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm getting excited just thinking about who who I'm going to be able to see yeah. when I go out there. So I'm I'm looking forward to that.
1: I'm with you, Jim. I remember when I went uh, for two years prior to the pandemic, I was watching Luis Robert, I was watching Nick Madrigal, Bryce Bush made an appearance, Lenny Sosa, so many of these guys that we were intrigued. And uh, that that is, I think, the reason you go down to spring training is to check out those players.
3: You know what's what's nice this year is it's it's insane thinking about this way, but it's the first time since 2019 that we've had – spring training business as usual. You know, we had the pandemic mm-hmm. that struck. I, I went to Florida in 2020, but the pandemic hit like almost right around this time. I think stuff got shut down about a week from now, three years ago. So everything crashed to halt in 2020. Then in 2021 spring training was, was, you know, the, like minor league camp started late because they didn't want to have those guys around the spring, the big leaguers. Cause they need to keep the big leaguers healthy. Everything was kind of, you know everybody was sequestered i don't even know what how much access we had to players i didn't even travel everything we covered was by zoom and then mm-hmm. last year we had the lockout um and so that like if you had guys on 40 man rosters they weren't in camp like a year ago at this time i don't think the lockout had quite ended so if you had guys on 40 man rosters they weren't in camp because they weren't allowed to be so <laughs> i'm actually looking forward like this is the first time in 4 years which is amazing that we will have a business as usual spring training where everybody's there. I mean, I guess some guys could be playing the world baseball classic, but it will be you know, basically everybody's there when they're supposed to be, where they're supposed to be, business as usual. So I'm really looking forward to that aspect of it too.
1: Well, Jim, safe travels. Thanks so much for all your coverage and and thanks for your kindness to our podcast. It's always great to have you. And you're, like I said, you're always willing to come on. It's, it's awesome. Anytime major league baseball pipeline drops a list, you're there for us and we really appreciate it.
3: Well, no, like I said, I appreciate you guys too. I think you guys do a great job. It's like, you guys always ask great questions and, and like, I've always felt that like, I mean, it feels like I, I make lists for a living, I guess is if, if <laughs> what I do, but like, if you're going to sit here and rank players, like whether it's you know the White Sox or the top 100 or whatever you know I do 10 organizations and we do the draft. Like look like, do, like there aren't necessarily definitively right and wrong answers. We won't know for years how these players turn out. But at the same time, it actually helps me to be able to like explain. Okay, why do you like Brian Ramos more than Jose Rodriguez? Say we, which we didn't cover. I'm just looking at my list. But like you, you I should have answers to those questions. It's like it's not willy nilly. And so I think. A, it helps me to be thinking a lot, of the lives, to be able to explain that, and two, I just think it like having—not that this is like you know we're dealing with like you know nuclear secrets here or anything—but like it should be a transparent process. I should have a reasoning. It shouldn't just be like, hey, why is Ryan Burroughs number eleven? Because. And so anyway, I just feel like if you're going to rank lists and say one player is better than another or worse than another, you should be like, if people want to know wh- why that is. It, it's good for everybody to have those discussions. So I like, I, it helps me. So I, I appreciate you guys for, for having me on.
1: That's Jim Callis at Jim Callis MLB on Twitter. Go to MLB pipeline, check out his top 30. Jim is a friend of the show. We can officially call him that for James Fox and Jim Callis. My name's Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the future Sox podcast. We're here for you every Tuesday, go to socksmachine.com, check out our Patreon and uh, think about becoming a patron because we provide exclusive content just for you and it keeps us going each and every day. White Sox content 365 days a year. We'll talk to you all next Tuesday.